how did we let this happen? I don't mean doing two George Papard movies so close to each other on this podcast. If you're confused by that statement, by the way, let me shamelessly plug our Patreon feed so you can be brought into the inner circle of listeners who got to enjoy me shitting on Damnation Alley. But yeah, I don't mean the two George Papards in a row thing. I don't even mean we in the sense of this podcast. I mean you and me, us, our parents, our grandparents. How did we let George Papard happen? Why did we, as a collective culture, allow George Papard to do things, this many things, for such a long time? If you grew up in the 70s or 80s, you probably know George Papard from the A-Team. That wasn't exactly before my time, but I was too young to care about anybody in it who wasn't Mr. T, so the charms of George Papard have largely been lost on me. I don't even remember ever hearing the name George Papard until I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and now I've said George Papard's name more in the past two weeks than I've said my own name in the past two years. George Papard is like a man outside of time. His name sounds kind of like a sexy 1940s movie star name, like Charles Boyer or Paul Henreid. But he looks more like a B-list 50s heartthrob with a name like Troy or Brock or Tab. What a weird kind of person to be a movie star. And with a host of honestly better contemporary talent around, I have to think George Papard was the guy that you got when the actor you really wanted was busy. Tell me you wouldn't have watched The A-Team with Charlton Heston, or Damnation Alley with Paul Newman, or today's film with Robert Redford, anybody but George Papard? For better or worse, this film could really only exist as is by being made in the 1960s. Make a movie about World War I flying aces today, and it would be an all-out CGI assault on the eyes. Digital biplanes looping and zooming across green screen sunsets, spitting in the face of God and physics with the most improbable and impossible stunts ever conceived of by the wildest imagination of the most cocaine-fueled Hollywood executive. This being made in the 60s, however, if they wanted a biplane up in the air, goddammit, they had to put a biplane up in the air. Also, if this were made today, you'd probably need to like the main character at least by the end of the movie. And that isn't just my anti-Papard bias talking. 1966 was prime time for dickhead anti-heroes who didn't give a shit about anybody but themselves. Not the brass, not the gorgeous blonde clad in nothing but bedsheets who finds their cruelty irresistible, and not the audience. This type of character doesn't age well into the 21st century, but was all the rage in the 60s and 70s, walking the fine line between stoic and sociopathic and looking cool doing it. It just doesn't quite work when you look, act, and sound like George Papard. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So jump in the cockpit with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we do everything in our power to confirm our kills while discussing John Gillerman's high-flying 1966 adaptation of Jack Hunter's novel, starring James Mason, Ursula Andrus, Jeremy Kemp, Carl Michael Vogler, Lonnie Von Friedel, Carl Schell, and goddammit, yes, George Papard. The Blue Max. Dungeon Bay, you now to fight. Call Pedro on through 
Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today we're here to talk about a 1966 film, The Blue Max. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. This is one of those where, for whatever reason in my mind, I kept thinking it was in black and white, and then I was happily surprised to see that it was in color. As you guys may have figured out by now, we try and curate our list to balance things out. Not too much action in a row, older versus newer films, etc. So we did that as well in this case, and this is totally different from the last film from the 1960s. And Katie's here to tell us all about this one. Originally a novel of the same name by Jack Hunter, The Blue Max is a story of one man's obsession with achieving his goals to the detriment of everyone around him. Bruno Stockel was originally in the infantry of the German World War I forces, but after two years, he manages to get transferred to become a fighter pilot. He arrives at the airfield to find that his fellow pilots are mostly aristocrats who are intolerant of his more... modern sensibilities, excepting Willy von Klugermann. The two become frenemies and strive to outfly each other as well as gain the permanent affection of von Klugermann's gorgeous aunt, resulting in tragedy all around. While the events of the Blue Max take place generally in 1918, it would be almost 50 years before Hollywood would really be able to capture the intensity of the fighter pilot experience from World War I. And boy, does this film succeed at that. Its aerial footage was, and still is, a unique experience, and almost all of the action you see on screen was done by real pilots. Very few miniatures were used, except where absolutely necessary. And that aspect is what most viewers and critics latched onto, even in current reviews, endlessly praising the fantastic flying and dedication to making every shot look as real as possible. However, the other aspects of the film were not so highly rated, particularly the meandering plot on the ground and the two-and-a-half-hour runtime. And while George Pappard was generally praised for his performance as Stachel, most found his character unsympathetic to the point where it didn't matter how well he played the role. It had an initial budget of $3 million, which quickly jumped to almost double that by the end of the shoot, possibly inflated by Fox's need to make the planes from scratch for both air forces. I am fascinated by World War I in general, and in particular with how planes impacted warfare. So was this your guys' first viewing of this movie? And have you seen any other films that are like this when it comes to how deeply it talks about the pilot experience? It was my first time viewing it today actually and i didn't really look into it beforehand i read the research afterwards so it was interesting because yeah I, i felt similarly to the critic reviews that you're talking about in terms of pilot experience films of course 1917 comes to mind for a second even though obviously a pilot is not a main character in that film at all just because of the dogfighting scene in the first act of that film. And also the battlefield scenes made me think of 1917 and other World War I films that I have seen. So it's not so much that it pulled me to other flying uh, films, but if anything, just the introduction to the film and seeing the World War I battlefields reminded me of other times where I've seen that. And to go off topic for just a quick second, uh, I thought the opening was really cool, especially for 66. They open right into action 
and then give you the credits during some really nice flying scenes, which I thought was a great contrast to Seven Days in May, for example, where they do the more classic kind of pump the credits right at the beginning, which is one of the old traits of cinema that I'm glad have mostly been left behind. I really like the modern style of filmmaking that drops you right into whether it's action or drama or whatever it is and kind of either does the credits only at the end of the film or they find a creative way to weave the credits into the film without having it be just an in-your-face initial thing. I had never even heard of this fucking movie before. You're welcome. This is my pick, folks. <laughs> it was. It was. This one is sort of lost in the annals of popular culture. Like, it's it's not one that people think of for reasons. As far as the pilot experience, I would say hot shots to keep in <laughs> stuff with uh, that, that we've already done. But no, so it's been a long time since I've seen it, but 12 O'Clock High mm. is very pilot-focused. And Catch-22 is my, is my all-time favorite book uh, when one day I am ultimately elected Emperor of the Universe. I'm going to be sworn in on a copy of Catch-22. That's my plan. Okay, Zaphod Beeblebrox. It, it, that has a lot of pilots in it, but it's all uh, Army Air Corps in a, in a squadron of bombers. So there's a lot of focus on the mission and the experience of being up in the plane and taking flak. I, I've seen this sort of uh, experience and mentality put out there before. Also, to to kind of a lesser extent, the Rocketeer, I feel like captures that sort of like flying ace sort of like in that very experimental sort of period when flying was new, maybe not like this new. 30s new. Yeah, if you were a pilot, you were a hotshot pilot, you know, and what's his face? Howard Hughes is a is a character, mm. is a secondary character in The Rocketeer, uh, I guess technically making it historical fiction, which is hilarious. But, you know, and, and he was a, a, a pioneer of aviation and filmmaking, but it, it was just this this era of if you were a pilot you were the walking embodiment of big dick energy. And this is interesting because it's kind of like, like they were still writing the rules. You know what I mean? Like they, there, oh, yeah. there, there wasn't, I don't know. And, and just seeing how the, how the different sides mounted machine guns on their, on their their planes was fascinating to me. And that is a thing we should get into at some point in this episode. And I know both me and Katie have read a lot about this and can talk about that even outside of aviation. I have not read a goddamn thing. Oh, it's uh, fascinating so. <laughs> that aspect of it cuz it was a it was a big problem to overcome. Well, yeah, but I also know that like they they were able to like able to time their machine guns to be able to fire through propellers and things like that, that is just like mind boggling to me. I'd be like, why didn't you just mount the thing somewhere else? And then I'm like, Oh, that plane over there has it mounted somewhere else. That would have been my solution. Mm -hmm. So it's like, there weren't rules for any of this. It was just, it was just like, Hey, let's see if that thing works. Oh, look at that. It worked. I don't know. It is such a, it's the, the wild West of aviation, like pre wild West. This was like the explorers pushing 
you know, across the Mississippi kind of. I would say the closest comparison is probably to the early days of the inter-forces war between um, the Navy and the Air Force and what eventually became NASA. This is about that level of where every single flight, they are learning new things, they are devising new things. People are coming up with whole ass new plane ideas, as we see in the film. Technology was growing at an exponential rate because of the warfare aspect of it. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated. For me, I think the only movie that I can think of that I've seen and does this is a Dunkirk. Dunkirk has a pretty interesting section of it that is uh, with Tom Hardy in his his fighter plane, which World War II, obviously, but maybe it's my love of Tom Hardy. But that's as close as it gets to showing kind of the perspective of someone who is flying these planes and why they're doing what they do. And he is a fucking snack. He is a snack. Liam, no one's talking about snacks. Come on. She was talking about Tom Hardy. Talk about a snack if I'm talking about Tom Hardy. (laughs) But his character in that film gets as close as anything I've seen to it in this regard. This film kind of fits in that sweet spot because it was right at probably the very beginning point of when they were able to film something like this. Like they had helicopters at this point, so they were able to get in real close with them. George Pappard did some of his own flying. He got a pilot's license for this and all of that. And they're able to get such great shots and the minimal special effects they do use are very well done for the time. So I think kind of feels like a thing unto itself. I didn't know you needed a pilot's license to sit in front of a rear projection. No, no. I mean, he, he flew that plane. I know. (laughs) I just like every time you cut into like, George Papard in the cockpit almost every single time. It's just him sitting there with the screen behind him, which normally doesn't bother me in older movies, but like in this, because there's so much good non-stock footage of planes flying all over the place, it really clashes with look over there. And it's just like, right. Oh, there's a screen. Like, you know, it's, Sorry, I cut you off because I'm a big dick, but... It's cool. But I th- I think part of that is because they probably weren't willing to mount a camera on that to get those kinds of close-ups and effects. They were probably willing to get to mount it in other places, but that's a pretty tenuous place to put a camera. So I would guess that most of those shots are done on a soundstage. Mm-hmm. But he did do some of the like more simplistic stunt flying. All of the real stunt flying was Derek Pigeot was uh, the one who did the vast majority of the really dangerous stunts. All those flying under bridges, that was all that guy. What about the crashing? Did they did they do real crashing? No, that was, well, kind of. All the scenes where you see the airplanes like twisting down, those, where the smoke is coming out of them, generally those were done with special effects where they had electronic triggered smoke things but when you show the planes actually crashing into the ground that was either done with miniatures or some real nice dropped from a crane footage cutting to make it seem like they were landing and crashing i have a better answer to katie's question is it hot shots no in terms of showing you the like intimate bond between the person and the machine and the internal stuff. I think First Man does that really well. Even though a lot of it is spacecraft, he does fly the X-15 right at the beginning. 
Oh, I agree. 100%. While it's slightly over-dramatized and there are like a few inaccuracies, I love that movie and they did such a good job with it that that is the yes. one in modern times that I would put up as one of the best examples of what it actually feels like to be in those situations. Obviously at 10 times the speed that these aircraft were flying, but still. Yeah, I've I've read Neil Armstrong's biography, First Man. Me too, yeah. I read it after the film. Yep, I I read it and while I was watching the movie, like I, so I was good. trying to get it done and it's it's a long book, folks, and very dry. And there were some parts I was like, I don't understand what you're saying, sir. This is too deep. But yes, I would agree. Those scenes where you can see Gosling like just fluttering just above and then he has to deal with the ramifications of it like that definitely hits along the same lines as this film i think Yeah, you feel like you're in that cockpit for sure and at no point do you notice the effects i mean that's obviously different technology they're using led screens but in a way that had never really been done quite that well it's funny liam while you were talking about the rear projection i was like that's funny i actually wrote in my notes Rear projection works pretty well in this film most of the time, except for the scenes where they have animated flames, which were really obvious. Oh, those were terrible too. But like, it's just that stark ass contrast between this is a real fucking plane and it is flying and doing Immelman's and loop-de-loops and all sorts of like crazy flying under bridges and stuff. And then it's just like, you're going to cut back to a soundstage. I understand why it was done. Right. Necessity of the time. Cameras at this time were not diminutive enough to be able to be adequately mounted onto a plane to get these kind of shots. But I still hated that because it was just such a such a jarring contrast. And I wonder if sometimes they did because sometimes it did look really good. And then sometimes and maybe this was. The film stock, Mm -hmm. you know, it's ancient Mm -hmm. film stock, so you got to get what you get. But there were some scenes where it felt like you could really see the flickering of the green screen or the whatever behind him. And then there are some scenes that feel pretty seamless. In the interviews I read with some of the pilots who were doing this stuff, they talked about how the helicopter pilots had quite a few uh, long distance lenses. So it very well could have been that the helicopter pilot is, you know, just close enough to get that good close-up shot, and then they just intersperse it with the right things to make you feel like it's in a firefight rather than George Pappard just happily flying a plane through, you know, calm air. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of old movies, but most of the time... It's two people in a car and the car is supposed to be moving, but it's not. And they're pretending that it is. Yeah. It bounces a little and shakes, but like there's a screen behind them that's shaking, not quite the same way. And they're taking their eyes off the road for a long period of time. And you're like, you're going to (laughs) crash into something, but they don't. And there's a scene of that in this where they're drinking the champagne out of those old style champagne glasses. No champagne would survive on the bumpy roads and <laughs> right. they just be all over the place immediately. But that's something where I can suspend my my disbelief very willingly. But when you're cutting back and forth between that and some of the coolest shit that's ever been filmed in, in the 20th century, it, it doesn't mesh well. And I also think that it's partly because the aviation scenes are so crisp and clear but it's also very difficult to recreate that level of natural lighting in the studio 
space against a, a rear projection screen. Yeah. Yeah, what you're saying makes sense, and I agree with you in theory, but for some reason, 95% of this film, I bought it. Even when my brain was telling me that's rear projection in the back of my head, I didn't have a problem with it. I don't know what it is because like Katie said, there are scenes where it's done better and scenes where it's done worse. But for some reason, everything else just pulled me in enough of the flying scenes that I bought it and it was believable. Maybe I just hate looking at George Papard's face. Maybe, because the other thing is I'm super sensitive to this when it comes to old film in cars. Like I'm constantly being pulled out of the scene by the uh, rear projection in that. For example, we talked about the man who knew too much and there's a bus scene in that that it's just terrible. The The jumping up and down of the screen is so different from the jumping up and down that the bus is doing that your brain doesn't buy it for a second. In fact, it makes me car sick just to watch it because I'm like, what the hell is going on here? So I, I don't know why in this film it never pulled me out, but it never did. And I realized something I mention all the time that just came to me now. Now that I know the director a little bit better, I realize the reasoning. In Pulp Fiction, the scene where Esmeralda picks up Butch mm-hmm. after the boxing match yes. has the like craziest looking not only is it rear projection done badly it seems like it's in black and white and i was like i never figured out until this second that i was like Uh, oh he's doing like a straight homage to these older films like so hard that he didn't even bother to make it in color and i was like but that's what he's going for and that makes sense now if you want to if you want a really good example of a scene like that that specifically doesn't use the rear projections is on the waterfront. Okay. Which if you haven't seen it, you should, but the big, the, the famous scene. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Takes place in the back of a taxi. And they were trying to figure out cause they didn't want to use rear projection. Uh, cause they didn't want to distract from the acting in the scene. And they were trying to figure out how to do it. The 50 and this was 1954 and one of the guys like i can't remember if it was the director or if it was just like some crew guy was like you know it was weird i was in a uh, i was in a cab last week and it had a it had like venetian blinds in the back window and they were like fuck it that's good enough for me put some (laughs) venetian blinds in the back window and it works great and so all they had to do was like shake the car a little bit, but then like also they did a great job with like simulating the street lights passing by and, and other headlights passing by and things like that. So they just had to recreate that kind of environment for it without it being a visual representation of the outside. Interesting. But this movie, not hot shots. No, I feel like this was an amalgamation of contradictions. Myriad things. It really, because obviously, as we've talked about, the footage while they're in the air is amazing. It's gorgeous. And that's pretty obviously why the film was made. Mm -hmm. Several people were severely injured making the movie because they wanted it to look so good. But when we get down to the nitty gritty of the plot, I've got some issues. And tell me about those. Ironically enough. So did Jack Hunter, the author of the novel. And that's because, from what I understood, they changed things pretty dramatically to hamstring the emotional development of uh, Bruno Stockhall's character. And I think that really comes through in the film, because it feels like Stockhall is 
there's no likable people in this movie mm. except maybe Otto. Uh, Carl Michael Vogler played uh, Otto von Heidemann. I liked Willie. I was thinking the uh, the butler with the wine. He was great. That was a super likable character. Oh, he was great. Oh, I liked he the was butler. Great. I loved him. His name was Hans. Was it was the elderly servant, as he's called. And I also kind of had like I kind of had some affection for the perverted corporal who kept sniffing everybody's mail. Oh yes. Oh. <laughs> the corporal who keeps on smelling everything and like reading everybody's mail. And that poor corporal. Yeah, he was, he, oh, oh, the long suffering corporal who has to drive him around in the rain. Oh, right. That guy. It feels like Otto is the only one who's an honorable man and he's still kind of insufferable. Even so, part of me likes that because these are real people fighting a war, not idealized heroes. And this film really digs into the idea that these are real people, but I feel like maybe it dug a little too far. So I kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for James Mason to show up in this movie. He's the best. I love James Mason. He is so cool. Dan, have you seen James Mason in anything? Maybe on accident, but not that I remember. He plays uh, Von Kluger, General Von Klugerman, right? Yes, he's fantastic. And he... He gets second billing in this movie and doesn't show up for like an hour in. And I'm just like, am I seeing James Mason and I'm just not recognizing him? Is is there another James Mason? Did like SAG allow that to happen by accident? Like what's going on here? And then he comes in and you're like, oh, there's James Mason. Now the movie can start. I was like, oh, fucking thank God. James Mason. Yes. Now I'm here. Now James Mason is here. I'm here. We're all here. (laughs) And now we can continue on with this movie. So I was going to ask a question. Is Ursula Andress's character the vengeful sexy lamp? Is that what we brought into this movie? Because I was struggling. She was a sexy lamp until the very end when she decides to do something. Until she becomes a vengeful sexy lamp. That's what I'm saying is I was kind of like. Is there more to this? I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of her character, because maybe it's just because she's stripped down from the novel uh, based on what Katie was saying. But like Mm -hmm. even more than the men, her selfish, shitty qualities were just highlighted over anything else about her. And she came off as just this opportunistic, vengeful beautiful rich woman that i was like annoyed with but do you guys get the subtext of what's going on between her and the general because there is a very clear and definite subtext of what their relationship is my understanding was that she just kind of gets to jump in with anybody she wants as long as it doesn't cause any problems yes and that's almost certainly because he's gay Uh, okay that that was i having read a lot about this time period There was a thing called companionate marriages, and that's what we think of as like a beard. A beard, yes. Whether for both partners, because often it would be both partners were were queer, and they would get married to each other, and then were able to live their lives with their their friends. So, you know, gal pals, as they say. Yes. But that is what this, the context of the time would hint at is that the general is is very very gay and so he marries this woman 
who can provide him um, political benefit through her sexual availability and all of that. And so the two of them come together for mutual beneficial means. I wasn't sure if I was reading gay or impotent. Because of like being older. Yeah, I caught all of the things going on minus the gay part since there's obviously no reference, no direct reference to his sexuality as a character. There wouldn't have been at that time. This was something that unless you're very familiar with that era, you're not going to know because it was supposed to be very hidden. and Right. If you didn't get it, that was the point. But also after the dinner scene where she goes to meet the lieutenant again and she talks about the relationship and she's like, Oh, he's fine. He's, he's war gaming with the older woman who's someone else's wife who was sitting next to him. Right. Okay. Right. War gaming with an elderly woman doesn't exactly scream gay to the audience. Like what, I, what I was thinking was, Oh, okay. This is a marriage of opportunity where she's a high class. She has a rich family background. She's a nobleman just like him. So there's obviously a reason to get married there. But she's way younger than him. It could be that they actually, as much as most straight men would love to have a younger hot wife, I feel like she's she's filling in a societal role that he may not necessarily be into. Even beside, even before you get to the point of like, oh, I'm not even interested in women at all. I was also just thinking, oh, she's not intellectually stimulating to him because she's some rich bimbo. He'd rather like go do intellectual stuff with this woman that's closer to his age. So I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying that's why I did like gay didn't jump out at me because that's the way I read it. That's totally a legit read. And the only reason I have this different read on it is because I've read stuff from that time period and from the current time period that talks about then much more frankly. Gay culture was just as big. It was just very underground. And they had all these kinds of code words. And before the Nazis, it was huge in Germany, like especially in Berlin. It was Berlin was the gayest. Here's my opportunity to drop some knowledge. Germany was one of the foremost medical investigators of transsexuality, being gay, lesbian, all of that stuff was something that was heavily invested in that the Nazis burned. Yep. Fucking Nazis <laughs> ruining everything. For every reason, they're terrible. But I think that's part of what's going on here that people of our age and even younger or older wouldn't get is because a straight man would not have been so willing to allow his wife to cheat around on him unless he was really progressive it was far more likely that a man was who was gay was like yeah whatever i don't care as long as you don't fuck up my career mm-hmm. like you did <laughs> lady she f- fucks it up but he never comes at her aggressive Mm-mm. he is never super aggressive he doesn't hit her he is manipulative and Someone who is obviously used to playing in the shadows. He swung her around by her face pretty hard towards the end, though. That's true. Well, she fucked up real bad. Here comes Liam excusing violence on women. Go ahead, Liam. I'm just saying like that had like that fucked everything up about as bad as things could have possibly gotten. Like every mechanism that he had put into play throughout the movie had just come crashing down. I mean. For the time, 
that would have been a very tame chastisement, I feel. Probably true. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's... That's part of what I'm saying. Yeah. Is that it's it's not like he he doesn't divorce her. And that's more what I'm talking about. It's not how physical or anything like that he is with her. It's that he very blatantly tells her, this is what's happening. And now we're going to continue on with our farcical marriage. And you're going to go along with it. We're going to be late for lunch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that line. I fucking love that line. Because it means he has something to uphold beyond just hiding the fact that his wife is sleeping around with these younger men. Because obviously, he doesn't give a shit about that. And and they have that deliciously frank and open conversation in the carriage about Willie, where she's just essentially telling him, like, mm, can't wait to bone your nephew. And he's like, have fun. I don't care. There, there's so much going on underneath the surface with that character. And I thought that was... Very interesting that the director decided to include that or that James Mason decides to play it that way. Mm -hmm. Because it could have been either way, you know? Well, James Mason was not afraid to take on less mainstream roles. Right. More controversial. Yeah. I mean, this is the guy who was uh, in Lolita. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, my God. (laughs) That's the first time. Or no, that's definitely not the first time, but that's the first time i remember seeing james mason my mom showed me all kinds of old movies when i was a kid but i remember james mason in lolita that i watched at like 14 you know when you watch lolita oh see the thing that i always i i always think of uh north by northwest when i think of Mm. james mason because it's one of the few times that you see somebody out suave cary grant that is true. You know, and he, you know, it's like the scene where like sit, they're sitting down and Cary Grant's like, Suppose I tell you, I not only know the exact time you're leaving the country tonight, but the latitude and longitude of your rendezvous and your ultimate destination. You wouldn't care to carry my bags for me, would you? Yes! And I was like, oh, yes, James Mason. <laughs> You're so smooth. So smooth. He's so good in that movie. So good. So one of the reasons why I loved that line at the end, the like, darling, we're going to be late for lunch is to me, it also sort of like reinforced not just their relationship, but the status that they held as aristocrats had a very British stiff upper lip kind of feel about it, but in a much more like royal imperial way than just like well this is the way germans are supposed to behave like this is the way that we the aristocracy are supposed to handle these things we have obligations now we have to go fulfill them we're going to be late for lunch and class runs through this whole film from beginning to end oh yeah for sure that's kind of one of the first scenes other than uh you know the initial moments where we see Stockholm in the trenches and he looks up and sees the planes. Once he gets to the Air Force Base, you know, he's immediately grilled on who was your father? Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yeah, it's like, what's up, poor mouth? What's your daddy do? Yeah. <laughs> he runs a hotel. Is it a big hotel? No, it's got like five rooms. Oh, where's your mom sleep? You know, it's just like Yeah, it was it was cool to see because that's the way that society would have been. And it was nice to see the the whole you're an officer, but you're not a nobleman. You're not a Vaughn such and such like us. Yeah. You're like a fucking Schmidt or something. It kind of felt like it was something that was because of how late in the war it was. Maybe, yeah. 
well, we're willing to take on anybody. We need pilots. Yeah, right, yeah that's right. totally plausible. Uh, in American military nomenclature, Stockel is what you would call a Mustang. So prior enlisted, who then became an officer. In this case, he's prior infantry, who then became an aviator, which there are certainly famous cases of that all over the militaries because officers ship aside you know rooting around in the mud with the rats in a trench is a totally different job than the noble art of flying and and air combat and especially during this time when i'm sure like we'll get into again there was this whole sort of old school i think old school shivery was able to be applied between pilots a lot longer than it was able to be applied historically between ground troops because killing is killing and hand-to-hand combat is what it is. It's probably one of the the only less realistic parts, I thought, of the film was when the Germans are actually landing in the British trenches and the stabbings that are going on were kind of like sort of old school theater. Like, stab me in the chest, like, oh, and I'm mm-hmm. going to lean over and die. There was no... Yeah, the, the, die, the dying in this was hilarious. Yeah, like that pulled me it out really of it. It really was. Which is a shame because the assault looked awesome the there was a dude who got machine gunned and did i swear to god a pirouette right yeah like he turned did you see him he turned around like three times on the spot before falling down and i was like are you fucking kidding me that's because most of the extras were from the berlin ballet the (laughs) i mean probably were no actually uh, this was mostly filmed in ireland so most of these it was the dublin ballet whatever all of the military extras were from the irish army they were all changing uniforms back and forth between but i mean there was a lot of fabulous dying going on yes. during that charge whereas like somersaults and cartwheels and shit guys doing like aerials and just like flying all over the place it was nuts. yeah the dying was either over dramatic or under dramatic depending on the scene uh whereas i think in a scene that depicts a real trench assault in sort of a more modern style film you would hear some blood curdling screams and you know, people fighting for their lives and the type of intensity that comes with that kind of hand-to-hand combat, that stuff looked really staged in the trench and kind of pulled me out. In that very first uh, few minutes, there's that like bullet ricochet there, sound yeah, that there is was like the one. cartoon. It was, it was just missing the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> right. I just, I exactly. I just started laughing as soon as I heard it. I was like, oh no. this!" And I'm sure at the time it was probably still like a totally normal thing to include as a sound bit. But now, you know, 70, 80 years later, it's become a joke. Well, I think it goes really well with Liam's point that he's made before. Oh, do tell. I'm all ears. It's like 55 years, Katie. Katie, once it goes past 20 years, Katie just has no idea. She's like, it's like 200 years ago. (laughs) I'm an accountant and I'm really bad with math, folks. That's why I use a spreadsheet. Never let anyone limit your dreams. You too can be accountant, even if you hate math. I'm just messing with you. Because the Marines are pretty new, too. Right. Fuck you, Liam. (laughs) We're also famously really good at math. That's what jarheads are good at. Yeah, that's what, yeah. Marines, whoo, sharpest tools in the shed. We know exactly how many crayons were in that box of crayons we just ate. (laughs) I was going to read this bit of trivia, though, because it covers exactly a couple of things that we were just talking about, like the extras in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Go back to me being right. 
it's possibly the juxtaposition of how good certain elements are that makes the bad elements look so bad. If you balanced it out and had a more mediocre movie, none of these elements might stick out as much, but it's because some of these things hit it out of the park so hard. Well, I think that's why they cast George Papard to try to like even out that mediocrity. Right. Depending on which side of the line you're on with George Papard. I mean, he's good looking enough and dislikable enough <laughs> the other the other thing to think about was at the time he was 37 when they made this and everyone knew everyone who's going to see this contemporarily knew oh this this is an old guy so it'd be like watching tom hanks play you know kennedy now not it's that like, oh. old again katie's doing math here everyone <laughs> It, it just <laughs> it, it was a situation where audiences of the time could look at it and be like this doesn't feel right. Papard's character is classically twice the age, like the actor's twice the age of a lieutenant. Even an older lieutenant who was in the infantry would have still been in like his early 20s, you know, so. This is a Grease model of teenager and 20-something-year-old. Right, but at the same time, anyone who's into war films has just had these decades and decades of building a tolerance to actors being too old to portray the military character that they're portraying so at this point it's kind of like eh. so speaking of the production and how they did things here's a good piece of trivia the movie production was run as a near military operation under command of technical advisor commander alan wheeler 1100 officers and men of the irish army under liaison officer lieutenant colonel william o kelly served as extras switching uniforms as necessary and equipped with 2000 rifles 24 field guns, 20 mortars, 20 armored cars, 500 grenades, and a plentitude of machine guns. Recreating the Somme No Man's Land required some 230 acres near Kilpetter, six miles from Ardmore in County Wicklow on Ireland's eastern coast. Wicklow. Wicklow, thank you. On Ireland's eastern coast, upon which an entire semi-destroyed French village was built like a life-size diorama. Top explosives expert Carl Baumgartner of Germany and England's Ron Ballinger came in to supervise the battle scenes. Quote, we shipped in our own explosives, says Ballinger, because we had to have absolute knowledge of its properties. That meant getting special permission from the Irish government, which fortunately proved most cooperative. Using five radio sets and 25 miles of wiring, their team of 60 set off over 5,000 separate blasts, about seven tons of explosives per day, some thousand tons in all. Yeah, if they'd spent as much time on the dying acting as they had on the explosions and the no man's land, those scenes wouldn't have stuck out as much. Absolutely. Here's the moment, folks, where we talk about the technology. When it went from being a observational role to a combat role, things became pretty decisive because they decided they needed to mount guns to planes and mount bombs to planes. And before that, generally aircraft had been seen as more observational through the use of balloons, aircraft that didn't have any guns, because when it went from shooting your gun using a propeller, you either had to avoid the propeller or shoot through the propeller and Turns out that last option wasn't a good option. It wasn't until about when this movie is portraying that they were able to develop a system that would fire the guns in between the propellers going around. 
So it was able to sync up with the propeller. And that's what that ratcheting forward, ratcheting back is like, because you don't get to control when the gun goes off, but you get to say, now gun, stop gun. I mean, at the time you see the British Air Force with the guy who is in the the second seat Mm -hmm. with the gun. And that was generally how the British handled it for quite a while was we'll just have this second guy who's got a, a, a I believe generally it was a Hotchkiss, which was a pretty intense machine gun. That's the uh, that's the Sean Connery seat from uh, the last crusade. Dad, are we hit? More or less. Sean, I'm sorry. They got us. Yes. Yeah. The Hotchkiss gun is a one big bastard of a machine gun. And I can see how in this film, when Papard's character brings in the British Air Forceman and he thinks he's shot down the second, the second man who's the gunner and he brings in the pilot with threats of like, I will kill you if you don't. And then I think that is honestly the pivotal point in the movie because it's the, that's, opens the question of whether or not he is a total hot dog or just mostly a hot dog. Because someone who's willing to go and spend another enlist man's time on let's search some ground. What's interesting about this is they they really hammered this home in a way that was, by the time they get to the last reference to it, I was like, okay, film, I got this. 10 minutes ago. And again, I am not necessarily the old school bulbs that you turn them on and they got to warm up. Like I can burn brightly, but it takes me a second. <laughs> and so when I first got introduced to this character, I refuse to believe this about you, Dan, honestly, <laughs> it's honestly really true. My brain works in mysterious ways. But so what was interesting is that that was the, like my first thought at the first scenes where he comes back and his partner is missing. Nobody knows if his plane got shot down, if he's alive, if he's dead. And this dude is so concerned about having his kill confirmed. And the whole time I'm like, I guess you guys aren't best friends, but like, really? Yeah, what happened to that guy? You're this callous? That was one thing that I had in Bruno's corner in his column is he was like, oh, wait, shit. You you guys still care when each other die? We stopped caring about, caring about that like a long time ago in the infantry. I don't know if that was just an excuse. I would take that more seriously if I hadn't read accounts of infantrymen from that time that explicitly talk about how every single one of those deaths weighed on them. I mean, that's that's all in the writing, but like in the moment, we either believe that he is sincere about that or that he's just making a, an excuse because he's a dick. Yeah. Yeah, he's making an excuse. My mind. There's a lot of interesting layers here. I think they make an obvious attempt to make him... So in the scene where he's getting the ride to the base at the beginning of the film, and he stops and throws the bottle of schnapps or whatever it is to the German infantry men that are hanging out in that, Mm -hmm. you know, rubble. I think they're doing a few things there. One is they're trying to show you that he can be a sympathetic character. He can have empathy for someone else. Two, they're showing you where he came from in the class connection and his past. Obviously, he's like, I know what it's like to be 
an infantry guy sitting around. And also he likes to drink. So the fact that he gives them an entire bottle away at a time where arguably alcohol was somewhat scarce. We see these officers drinking champagne like it's going out of style. But I imagine as the war got closer and closer to the end, that became more rare as things got more serious. But I get what Liam's saying, where there was an attempt in the writing here to show that he doesn't care because that part of his empathy has been destroyed by the ravages of like being in the infantry in World War One. But I think they underdeveloped it and undersold it. And the way it makes him come off to me is on the extreme end, like an opportunistic sociopath who's actually using the excuse that was in the that he was in the infantry to say, well, that's why I don't care that this guy might be dead is because we, but I actually, I don't believe it at all. I think that he's always felt that way and that he probably felt that way in the trenches too, but I don't think it was that different from his first kill or first death to his hundredth. Now, obviously that's not the only read on this character, but my gut was pushing me that way because again, by the time one of the other officers actually directly accuses him and says, you're telling me you care more about confirming this kill than about the guy who died. I was like, okay, thanks for beating me over the head with it. At this point, like I've been thinking that about this character for the last 20 minutes. So I thought that that was a little undersold in some ways about his past and his character and then overwrought in other ways to where I was like, okay, I guess this is what we're supposed to think about this character because the movie has been hammering me with it. Well, here's, here's where I want to talk about Willie Von Klugerman. Because, at least from the film's perspective, not from mine, he feels like the almost opposite and antithesis of Stockholm. Because he comes from an old family. You know, his his uncle is the general. And to be clear for everybody, his aunt married into the family, so it's totally fine for him. Totally to- boning his aunt. Not incest. I mean, hey, why are we judging? I mean, it was World War One. It People wasn't because crazy. it was his aunt. She no, just happened to be his aunt and super hot and super into him and a husband who was totally down. And first of all, Andrus at age 30 or whatever she or 28 was my aunt by marriage. And <laughs> never mind. <laughs> no, keep going. Go there. We're not going to. Nope, go we're not going to go there. <laughs> Please um, continue. <laughs> this film really tries to walk this line of being class conscious when it comes to Willie and Stockwell's relationship. And I think how well it succeeds is going to be up to the viewer because Willie initially feels so like grossly aristocratic. Oh, he's just, he's languid. He's languid with his privilege, but he's also one of the best flyers. And also willing to put himself out there. And then he and Stockhol develop this relationship that feels really toxic. And that's why I said in my mission briefing uh, that they're frenemies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of the other people, when Stockhol comes into it, all the other pilots are like, nah, fuck this guy. I'm not going to get involved with him. And Willie is like, hmm, I need a rival. You fascinate me. You're my rival now. So he's willing to put up with some much more unsavory parts of Stockholm than the rest of them are. And then that devolves into absolute madness and costs Willie his life. And it's 
so interesting to see Willie and Stockel have this antagonistic camaraderie between the two of them where it's not sexual, but it almost gets there. It's like very middle grade or junior high level of like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to fuck your aunt and then I'm going to bring you a bottle of 1903 wine. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to fly under these bridges and act like it's no big deal when we are really risking our lives. And it, it it's just this macho coping mechanism of, at least in my perspective, it's these men who are dealing with this incredibly difficult situation, especially on the aspect of those dudes who, they are German men. At that point in the film, the, the war is obviously not going their way. And they are still trying to find their heroicism and their reasoning behind why they're doing all of these things. And yet, they still fail when it comes down to it, in that Germany loses the war. And to me, I think the class warfare aspect of this and the male relationship aspect of this was the most interesting part of it. Between Willie and Stockel, it is far more like this, who can be better? And being better defines your worth as a human. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. And it reminded me of a a theme from this period and earlier, especially men and the military. Now it affects women as well in a certain way, but it's specifically true in the old school ways of men in the military. And I was thinking about it when they're in that pretty nice hotel type situation, which is where, where the officers are staying. And it's all stone with big fireplaces. And he goes to his new room and his room's like pretty nice, right? And you see the guys downstairs and they're all fucking around. They're all having champagne. They're all like talking about blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like he knows this was not his experience in the infantry, right? This is a very flyboy situation where it's like, look at the privilege that these flying officers have that they probably get their eight hours of sleep and they're in this like nicer old school mansion type situation. And they're downstairs and like, oh, we're going to talk about so-and-so. You want to like come along and like there's champagne for everyone, etc. And I remember thinking about how war and the military can be this sort of imaginary play world for men. It's not just like being into your job, right? Where let's say you work in a factory or you're a mechanic and it's like you really aren't good at being a family man or the other responsibilities you have in life. But when you're at work, you're in your element, right? You're technically really proficient at what you do. You're in charge of a section. They respect you as a person, as their, you know, all those things that can develop. Again, women totally have a parallel for this, but because of this older period, I'm talking about the male military aspect of this. Right. It was only available to men at this time. Other than nursing, nursing was very similar. Exactly. I'm sure there's a conversation to be had about how women actually experience this right. versus their home life. But that's a whole other conversation that gets even more complicated. And in film, all we're going to see is a men's perspective in this world. Right. But my point, going back to what you guys were talking about, is that it reminds me that a lot of these men may not either have had good lives at home, may have been bored of them, may have been tired of them, maybe running away from them. But it's like, this is their life and this is what gives them worth. So the medals they put on their chest and the exploits that they 
get to participate in, especially as aviators who after 20 kills, you could like be in the newspaper and you can be on propaganda posters. Like if you killed 20 people in the infantry, that usually wasn't happening unless you were part of some famous, you know, incident that happened and you won the medal of honor or whatever. So what I'm saying is there's an aspect of it where you kind of have to wonder what this person was like in real life, because this military environment, you're able to reshape yourself into a whole other type of person, which is again, why to me, the main character, Stockel, feels like maybe he might have been someone with social issues or some kind of weird sociopath in real life because of the way he's interacting with people where I'm like, wow, being a fighter pilot gives you an opportunity to sort of take advantage of this part of your personality. But again, going back to the scene where he takes this poor corporal driving him around in the rain all night, I'm like, see, here's the thing. No matter what the time period was or what was going on, politically and socially, he either did not make the connection to how bad that would make him look to all the other men that like, why aren't you out there looking around for your friend who might've died or your wingman who might've died instead of looking around for some crashed aircraft so you can add a tally. Right? So the fact that he couldn't give that up and just say, you know what? I accept what my superior said. Unconfirmed means unconfirmed, which I wrote down. I was like, dude, his superior is right. Like that's the way it is. Right. It's this obsession. That's the thing that resonates throughout it is obsession. Exactly. The obsession and either the inability to realize how that makes you look to people or the apathy to you not caring how that makes you look to other people. That's what I found interesting about this character is I was trying to figure out who is he and what are these motivations because this is a very extreme way to act even in this environment. That scene I think was the most uncomfortable for me is watching it where he is dragging it. so is that guy a corporal mm-hmm. i think so he's an Alyssa guy it's for the, sure. the yeah it's the corporal who's sniffing the mail and i just thought leave that poor man alone why are you doing this and in particular i thought like oh you have no idea what you've done you have just poisoned Every single man who works under mm-hmm. you, because this guy is going to bitch about what an asshole and crazy person you were. Exactly. It's pretty clear from the beginning that that is his biggest mistake, is this obsession. So I don't know that that I definitely see what you're saying. I don't know if I 100% agree. I think it might just be a failing of the film, either in writing or acting. In that could be for sure. Yeah, definitely. I don't think that it was necessarily a, a psychological character study in this dude lacking empathy or being a sociopath. It was, to me anyway, much more indicative of the class issue and that he is now an officer and never was before. And that all his understanding of it is the number of kills that you get. And that he came from a place where human life was fairly disposable. Right. And I got that there was a disconnect between him and this aviator officer class where they're going to have a ceremony for the two British guys that he killed where they're draping flags over him. And they have the time... And the the time, the inclination, the concept of honor and chivalry and the luxury of doing those things 
Whereas he was coming from a place where people were, were, their feet were rotting off in the trenches and dying from mustard gas and getting bayonets in the belly and losing arms to machine guns. And where piles of bodies were rotting for months. They weren't getting any kind of ceremony or goodbye, right? Yeah. And just rats fucking everywhere. And it's just like, and you're going to scold me because that guy died? Like the plane was more valuable. One of the things I noticed is that they did actually have the rats. Yeah. There are like eight to ten mm-hmm. rats in that shell hole that he's hiding in. So that was what I got. And it might be like, and, and part of it is that in case you haven't noticed, I am not team George Papard. I'm team James Mason. Who is George Papard's team? Nobody. Nobody gives a fuck. I never heard about George Papard. I never heard his name before. People who love Damnation Alley, but in in retrospect. Well, in this movie, <laughs> I'm saying. And who's Bruno Stockel's team? I never heard of George Papard until I heard his name because he was in a movie that was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. First time I ever heard George Papard's name. Ever. Yeah, but we've seen his face as part of the A team. We just weren't necessarily familiar with his. Sure, name. I didn't know what his fucking name was. He's the guy next to Mister T. You know what I mean? Like, like the white dude. I remember him in Damnation Alley, and I didn't like him in that either. Like, he's not a good actor. I don't know why we have him do things. Why does George Papard get to do things? He looks like whoever the Ken doll was originally modeled after. Like, and that is it. Here's my George Papard thoughts. He is so smirky. Throughout this whole movie that I wanted to punch him. Does smarmy apply here too? Oh, smarmy. I think that's a that's a 60s anti-hero thing. No, I, I have watched lots of 60s movies. So have I, but I mean like. That particular face of like, like I, I can't even replicate it. He does a lot of that. He, he does a lot of that, but it's because he's he's the guy you get because you couldn't get Steve McQueen. Like this is I am cheap bad guy face. He's he's supposed to be cool and disconnected and I don't care. Fuck the man. Like in a very 60s anti-hero kind of way, but he sucks at it. Yeah. He does. You shell out the money to get Steve McQueen. But and here's here's where I'm going against the grain. There are a few scenes where George Papard is pretty fucking good. And I only say that because from what I've read about the original novel, like this character is not supposed to be sympathetic. He is an anti-hero. He is supposed to make you think about what it is to be a hero, what it is to be a man, blah, 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 blah. So there are a few of his scenes with... Ursula Andrus? Katie, but spelled differently from yours. It is, and that's why I won't use her real name. There are a few of his scenes with Ursula Andrus that feel very genuine, where... He feels like a man who has no care for anyone beyond himself. I was going to say like a man who wants to fuck Ursula Andrus because that's not acting. That's just him being in the room. No, no. And I'm talking in particular about the scene where after he has been lauded as the war hero and they've brought him to the fancy hotel and Ursula Andrus comes to tell him like, come away with me to Switzerland. Everything will be fine. That scene in particular, I think, is where Papard shows his acting chops because he is both dismissive of her and tempted and disgusted. Like, through his facial acting, I can see a lot of different emotions there that I wouldn't have seen 
throughout the rest of this movie because the rest of this film is essentially him being kind of unsure, him being a smug asshole, and him flying a plane. In that scene, what his face was telling me was, horny men know like this. Like, that's <laughs> what his face acting was telling me. That could be true. It could be my reading. It was this stern, like, hmm, I want to put my dick in you, but I hate everything you're saying. It's quite possible that his bad acting added to the sort of holes in the writing to make, at least in my eyes, to make these concepts and the plot more complex than it was originally intended to be. Because I think that I was questioning what his internal motivations were the whole time. And I couldn't quite figure it out because I couldn't think the way this character would be thinking. And so it was really difficult to understand what he was going through and where he was coming from. And that kept me engaged because I don't feel like he ever clashed internally. Like his acting never clashed with some other scene that he had. Like I felt like it was consistent, but for example, when he's ushering the, the uh, British pilot back to his base, Ugh. had the rear gunner not come out of it, I think he was just going to force them to land and they were going to take them prisoners. Yes. Ostensibly is what they were showing you, right? In which case, he would have been not only a hero for doing that, but he also spared the men's lives or at least the pilot's life. He would have been honorable. He would have been honorable and he would have captured a British aircraft without destroying it, which doesn't exactly count as a kill. But at the same time, he might have been the only pilot out of that group that captured an enemy aircraft. A lot harder to do than capturing enemy infantry troops, for example. Right. It's hard to capture an aircraft. So that would have been interesting. And then they had the guy wake up and have him shoot the plane down in front of his whole squadron, where instantly, of course, if you're paying attention, you go, oh, they're going to think that he brought it back the entire time just to shoot it down in front of them to then walk out of the plane and fucking throw his hat on the ground and be like, confirm, bitch, which is exactly (laughs) what he does. And I was still like, damn, do you not realize how callous and vicious this makes you look, even though it wasn't your fault? That guy came to and was definitely going to fire his machine gun at him. He was 100% justified in shooting that plane down. But like all the machinations going on behind the scenes there, I was just like, this might just be accidentally brilliant because it makes you think so much about what's actually going on and how everyone is interpreting what's happening. And so my husband, Paul, and I were watching this together and he went downstairs to like do something during that exact scene. And after oh, it happened... I know you rewound it. After it happened, I was like, all right, we're going to pause this. It's like, you didn't have to pause it. And I was like, oh no, honey, shit has gone crazy. Like there's lots of flying you can miss in this film that's just like more flying, but it's not that scene. And then there's the second scene with him and Willie. Two different scenes where the emotional state and why they're doing it and all of this comes together. And it's it's the scene with the English pilot, which really kind of sets the tone for his his character's reception for the rest of the film. And then it's the scene with him and Willie where they're obviously... And this is where I think not just George Pappard, but, but also Jeremy Kemp, who plays Willie, where their age really works against them. In this, because the 
dick measuring contest that they're doing where they're flying under bridges and is not something that men of that age would do because they understand, especially men of that age who've been through so many near-death experiences, they're not going to do that at 35, which both of these men were. But at 22, 23, which is about what their characters are supposed to be, yeah, you can see boys slash young men engaging in those activities and not really realizing the ramifications of something goes wrong. And so that first moment sets up the second moment where it gets even worse, where the judgment is like, "Mm, don't do this. I have to say, I think if this movie works, I think it's because of everybody around George Papard. You really hate George Papard. I do. I I spent this movie. <laughs> we we watched George Papard in Damnation Alley, and I kind of fucking hated him and his acting in that. And then I watched him in this, and I was like, okay, George, show me what you got. And he's like, uh, I'm just gonna be a fucking gaping asshole the whole time. And he's insufferable. I spent the movie waiting for him to die. Thankfully. It did not disappoint. Was that death scene good for you? Close. I mean, they telegraphed the fuck out yeah, of it. Yeah, like, a, like lot. a lot. of other things in this film. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, see it coming from a mile away. You're like, oh, okay. One interesting thing that I hadn't had a chance to talk about is it's interesting that this is the melding of th- three different conceptually nascent things. Cinema... If this was a movie from the era it depicts, so cinema in the early 1910s and like this type of environment would have been super early on. Aircraft are a super new type of technology. And then, yeah, just being able to film this the way they did with, like Katie said, helicopters and all that were very new things. So there's some interesting, some are literal and some are more conceptually new things that kind of cross over in this film. We definitely hit on this uh, during the Peter Jackson documentary episode, They Shall Not Grow Old, where the crazy thing about World War I was all this new technology meeting older times. So all these experienced generals having experience at war, but not really in this way. And the reason, like Katie brought up, that aircraft were mostly used for aerial reconnaissance at first is because 30, 40 years earlier probably even as far back as a hundred years earlier, but whenever the first hot air balloons went up, uh, which I don't have the year in front of me here, but that was in the 1800s. One of the first military uses of it was to be able to observe enemy maneuvers and what they were doing. If you think back to before that time, other than having a spy that was able to infiltrate the enemy camp and then come back with maps or plans and be like, oh, this is what they're planning next week and tell you what the strategy was. That's a huge difference between modern warfare and old school warfare is not being able to see the enemy on the other side of a hill, for example. So you can fire your artillery in that direction, but you're kind of firing based on just some older intelligence that it's like, yeah, that's generally where they should be. But to have real-time aerial observation about large enemy maneuvers was a huge change in warfare. And World War I was one of the first places where you were really able to do that effectively, especially with the advent of radio. Again, radio was kind of new. We talked about this before. So just being able, so being able to see the enemy movement and then being able to communicate that back to your command post in real time 
whether you were using Morse code with mirrors or whether you were able to actually communicate via radio was a huge advent. And there is no radio in this because we see a lot of the like hand gestures that the pilots are using to engage each other. That was one of the craziest things about watching this for me. These guys are flying the planes. They have their dials and then their hand communications with each other is kind of mind blowing because it's so primitive in what we think of today. And the combat, like you said, Airborne combat was something that was just being developed. So the first kills were famously pilots dropping grenades out the side of their plane into like enemy trenches or literally pulling their handgun out while flying this contraption and taking pot shots at a pilot that was within reach of, you know, a handgun range, which is not very far away. So the addition to fixed machine guns was a huge deal Eventually, German aircraft company Fokker in 1915 developed the first reliable synchronization gear, which you can look at diagrams of this online and it's very clear that there's just basically a little button that gets pushed every time the propeller comes to a certain spot in the rotation and it cuts off the machine gun from firing. It's pronounced Fokker. F-O-K-K-E-R. Fokker. You're saying in German it's Fokker? In, in, in German and in every pronunciation, it's Fokker. Interesting. Okay, I thought it was Fokker in German. How do you pronounce it? Just like it's spelled. F-O-C-K-E-R. Fokker. Hmm. Fokker. Uh-huh. Hmm. So going back to the synchronization gear, that was a big advantage where all of a sudden you started to really have, and it sounds like the Germans had it first. So it was on the Eindecker fighter and led to a period of German air superiority known as the Fokker Scourge from July 1915 to early 1916, during which the British Royal Flying Corps lost 120 aircraft. Eventually, I'm sure this synchronization gear was either ripped off of the Germans or taken off of a capture, you know, reverse engineered off of a crashed airplane. That's probably how it happened and then spread throughout the Entente forces as well. So let's talk about the Red Baron, because the Red Baron has so many connotations in today's day and age. I really couldn't decide if I liked that or not. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts. My husband looks at me. He's like, you going to get a pepperoni pizza? And I was like, well, I don't know if it's that Red Baron. And then I looked and yes, yes, it absolutely is that Red Baron. See, I thought Snoopy. And that was something that was really inspired by this film. Like Charles Schultz was really inspired by this film to have Snoopy flying the the Sop with Camel during after this movie. Because the Sop with Camel was something that came about shortly after this quote-unquote era. For me, the Red Baron comprises these two different areas. Knowledge of the time, where... He was an incredibly brave fighter who brought together a bunch of men under his tutelage and really pushed the idea of warfare. And then there's the Western version of the Red Baron as, you know, the pizza mocule and all that shit. And it was so awesome to see 
from a distance, he looked a lot like uh, George Pabard. Like when he came out, I was like, oh, weird. They picked a dude who like is a spitting image of him, at least like height, build and hair. They did. You know, they have Carl Schell, who portrays the actual Red Baron, who feels so much more authentic than these kind of ideals that we've come up with. Even in like, oh, I swear to God, he's got like five minutes in the movie. And yet I've seen 20 different commercials of the Red Baron and all these ideas. And there's at least one Hayao Miyazaki movie that includes the Red Baron. But in this, he feels very genuine because he feels like a man who is just trying to perpetrate his his goals. And Carl Schell plays Von Richthofen, a.k.a. the Red Baron. And he really owns that role. I also thought it was kind of jarring and funny that he comes out of the house where he's talking with the other officers and then our main character comes out to meet him and they sort of pause because it's like this guy's hero, right? And he would have been very famous at the time. And the camera kind of does a close shot of his face and you know, he's got the blue max medal right there on his uniform. And it almost freeze frames. And I swear to God, in the earlier scene, when he first checks into the unit and Willie pulls out the newspaper and sees the photo of Von Richthofen and he's like, oh, is he a hero of yours? I think it's just a still frame of that same shot from the movie. (laughs) (laughs) So it was just really weird that the chronology of seeing the actor on screen like not pause, but just sort of like the action pauses for a second. And then I was like, wait, I've seen this exact shot before. And it was in the newspaper from earlier. I could be wrong. Maybe they did a, just a very similar, you know, in makeup, et cetera, photo shoot, but it looked almost identical to where I was like, well, that's a little bit strange looking, but I agree with you, Katie. Uh, he was honestly, unless you've really studied world war one, He's one of the names that has survived in popular culture from that military time period. Probably the only one who was that famous at the time and is still famous now. If you had to list the top three fighter aces, I don't even know if I can name three, but he's definitely going to pop up as number one. And and Charles Schultz definitely contributed with his uh, Snoopy. That's true. And the Christmas Bells song. Here's the weird thing. I think about this era is that it was more open to epic recollection than something like today. Are you talking about the sixties or the teens? When you say this era, the teens where you are talking about things like to go way, way back Beowulf or something like this, where you can have these mythological figures and the red Baron, just like the Scarlet Pimpernel feels like these epic characters or Zorro or something like that. You know, the Red Baron, as I was watching the film, you know, you see him with his triplane and he's flying around. And as soon as you see that red plane, you're like, oh, my God. Even if you know exactly nothing about World War One or World War One flyers, like you are likely to recognize it's the Red Baron. Because also painting your gigantic three-winged plane bright red is a pretty 
ballsy <laughs> move. Like, yes, not exactly. Not exactly. Like, you don't want to be extra visible in and dog it was, fights. It was even more ballsy than this film portrays. Like, this film kind of makes it feel like airplanes were not as difficult to come by as they were. Him painting himself red was absolutely a like, fuck you, come for me. Yeah, that it never occurred to me what a stupid idea that is until watching it in this movie when like that plane stands out against all of like, I mean, cause these planes aren't necessarily difficult to see, but on an, like on an overcast day, the gray standard German plane would have been advantageous to have. Gray is an extremely difficult color to see. And I can tell you from having watched planes a shit ton surprisingly even against the ground when i see when i used to see military helicopters lifting off all the time which are very muted they're like light gray and then the u.s marine or like usa insignia on it is a darker shade of gray so they are very much one tone you'd be surprised how difficult they are to see even with a backdrop of buildings or a hill or whatever it is the ocean, the sky, they're painted that way because it's a color that blends into a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's just as foolish nowadays to paint your plane bright red as it was back then. Back then, combat happened a lot closer up, so even worse. It kind of reminds me of like the uh, American Revolution where, you know, the, the... Right, the British are in bright red and you're like, well, that's easy to shoot. Right, <laughs> and the French, the French are in bright blue. Blue and red, yeah. And we're all like, I'm just gonna wear normal colors and shoot your ass. And and it feels very much like a World War One of the time that was living in these two eras. I think all World War One films, and I hope we talk about this more in future war movies. Wait, like future war? Future dash war movies or just future war movies? Again in the future. This is a good time to plug our Patreon. Both, actually. I'm going to say both. Movies that are about war in the future and about movies that we talk about in the future that are war that aren't future wars. Join our Patreon at dangerclose.com forward slash support if you want to listen to future war podcasts. It's super great. Oh my God, you guys will love it. It's terrible. Nobody listened to it. Shut Liam. You're not advertising. I'm I'm hot garbage at self-promotion, oddly enough. We do award-winning, Oscar-winning films like... The Terminator franchise. I fucking hate all of you. <laughs> as well as hot requests like Damnation Alley by our friend Mike D'Angelo, who picked a solid B movie. And and guess what? If y'all vote for Titanic enough, we will totally do it to make Liam suffer. I hate you all so much. Anyways, getting back to what we were saying. So I'm still a little torn on the inclusion of the Red Baron. Because, yeah, it is cool. You're like, oh, fuck, it's the Red Baron. I seen him. He's red. But at the same time, it felt kind of like, why am I, why am I, why is, why is this one historical figure here? It would be sort of akin to Lord Nelson showing up in Master and Commander. I can see that. I understand that it's like, I understand that it's cool and it did feel kind of cool, but it also kind of like took me out for a minute. So- I think I have an answer to your question, coincidentally. I don't know that I can attribute this to great decision-making by the people who made this film. 
it may have been something inadvertent that now I think plays to its strengths and plays really well. But that may be now that we are about as far from when this movie was made as this movie was from the events in the film. I can't speak to the reasons and the popular culture stuff behind the Red Baron in 1966 in the US and Europe where this movie would have been most popular, but I can say that it's interesting now to see that inclusion because I often think of a hundred years as sort of the cultural memory limit for most people in the current culture. That's about as far back as you can remember. Generally speaking, historians are an exception. There's lots of people who specifically spend time reading and studying history who are exceptions. But for the average populace, this is my personal opinion, I feel like 100 years is about as far back as you can go and still relate to the people from that time. I talked about this in the in the World War One episode that we did, They Shall Not Grow Old. And so it becomes difficult to connect to these characters from a period that's depicted of a hundred years ago. They could have chosen to show plenty of famous people from history that if you consider when World War II was compared to the making of this film, which is about 20 years, and when the Nuremberg trials were, here's for example, a list of, so Germany awarded 1,687 blue maxes during World War I. Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, was only one of these recipients. Here's some other famous German names you may recognize if you know World War II or World War I history. Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, and Erich Ludendorff, both famous generals in World War I. Future Nazi Reichsmarshal and Luftwaffe-head Hermann Goering and Erwin Rommel, also known as the Desert Fox. So for contemporary audiences, especially since this is fictional, so you could put people in whatever squadron you want to. They don't necessarily have to, you know, be in their historical squadron that they actually served in. You could have shown any of these people coming into the scene to have a famous person or to, you know, immortalize the time period. But 50 years after that, aka nowadays, how many people would have recognized a young, thin Goering in this film? Would have had nothing to do with the Holocaust, nothing to do with the Nazis, because this is all 25 years prior to that. Yet, if you would have used that character's name and they would have said, oh, Captain Goering, all the audiences at the time would have been very aware of who that was, right? Goering had, if I'm not mistaken, committed suicide while captive during the Nuremberg trials. He was one who never made it to be hanged or make it to trial. But you would have been opening up a whole other can of controversy if you were bringing up contemporary Nazis in a 1966 film. Conveniently, though, the Red Baron was shot down and died in World War I, flying a plane in combat. So there's no Nazi controversy to be had with that character. I don't know about how much of these things they were thinking about in the early in the mid 60s when they were casting this film and, and, you know, what's in the book and whether the Red Baron's in the book. But looking back on it with 100 years of retrospect, it brought up interesting points in my mind. And so I was really happy to see it because I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I agree with Katie that they humanized him a lot. They made him seem like a popular officer from the time who flew a flashy plane and had a really good kill record. 
But in the end, he's more seems more friendly and compassionate, to be honest, than any of the other people that work with our lieutenant. So I don't know. There's some choices there, and it's hard to decide what was done at the time and what I'm just seeing in retrospect. But that's kind of how I view that scene with von Richthofen. This movie tells something from a German perspective that we don't often get. Honestly, I'm really sad we don't often get it because I think there is a lot to say from the German perspective, not just from World War One, but from World War Two and onward of these men who were engaged in a lot of times a, a losing battle. And their perspective would have really given us a deeper perspective on why they perpetrated this war that this film really just kind of skirts over. It's time for the breakdown, where we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Dan, what'd you think? Yeah, I think it's always fun to go into an old film, not having heard of it, seen it, know anything about it, just going cold. It's almost like cinema archaeology in a way, right? But it is interesting to look at something from 50, 60 years ago, again, with a different relationship to the time period they were depicting at their time. A lot of the people in the production, I'm sure, are long dead by now. And so, I don't know, it's an interesting time capsule, I think, to watch people from the past making a film about people from their past. And that's a big part of what I love about this war film project. I think the objective here and what they put their the most effort into was depicting realistic aerial combat from World War One. That's obviously where most of the budget of this film went. And it's really clear where they put so much effort into really flying replica aircraft under bridges, et cetera, et cetera. Honestly, even though World War One aircraft were more obviously more available in the 60s than they are now, most people who owned them and had restored them faithfully were not about to just loan them to a movie, to a production company, to then go crash them into a building or something, right? These are expensive projects that people have worked really hard to restore, especially since like World War II to now aircraft, like a P-51, again, we're talking about sheet metal and stuff, things that you can protect from corrosion, et cetera. When you talk about cloth and wood, a lot of these planes just rotted after, you know, their third decade in storage or whatever. So yeah, it's really incredible that they went through the trouble of recreating and replicating all a lot of these old aircraft. And while maybe it's just because I'm not a huge film nerd, the ones that are slightly off or where you can tell it's a replica, they don't stick out to me because again, this is over a hundred years ago and I'm not as familiar with the planes. In terms of showing the audience that, I think the film was really successful. I think they nailed their objective of trying to show you a realistic depiction of World War I dogfights and a little bit of the pilot's life. When it comes to the story they set it in and adapting this novel, which there's tons of people. I mean, I think it was three people were credited for the adaptation and three people were credited for the screenplay. So you're talking about a total of seven writers, including the original uh, novelist, Jack Hunter, And that's a lot of brains for this story to go through, which is fiction in the first place, right? It's historical fiction, so none of the characters are real, with the exception of, you know, the Red Baron, etc. So 
I don't know. I, I feel like this was one of the times where, especially our conversation or like my back and forth with Katie and Liam really made me think about how much of this was intentional and how much of this just aged well in a very specific way where it added all these layers to things where it made me think more deeply about what would Stockel's motivations have been he was in the infantry. He was now an officer. He was now a pilot, but he wasn't a nobleman like the rest of these Vons. Again, I think some of it was intentional and some of it just kind of worked out with the casting. And I found that to play really well into making the film age well. It looked great in a way that made me immerse myself into the film and wasn't constantly reminding me, hey, this is a film. Hey, this is a film. I was able to just watch it and be absorbed by it for the most part. And of course you add the incredibly amazing aviation stunts and all the realism that's in there that sells it to you that much more. And then again, some of Papard's mediocre acting may have been hidden by this sort of convoluted character where it was really difficult to pinpoint his motivations. In the end, all of that worked really well for me and while I agree with Katie that there was an extra 30 or 40 minutes of fat that could have been trimmed from this film by tightening up some of the dogfighting scenes, a lot of that was a bit superfluous in a way where you understand because you're like, yeah, you spent so much money and spent so much time doing these aviation scenes. Like, for sure, knock yourself out, filming it out and, you know, in the editing process, including more than you normally would because it looks great and you're proud of your work. But it could have been a little shorter. Personally, I did really like it. I doubt that it's going to be the best World War One film that I ever see in general. I'm a big fan of 1917, and I really loved Kubrick's Paths of Glory, which I'm sure we'll we'll see here, which starring Kurt Russell, by the way. Fuck you! Just shut <laughs> you. Ugh. Okay, sorry. That was that was just a call back to the time uh, last week when I made a post about seven days of May and accidentally named Kirk called Kirk Douglas Kurt Russell. First I called him Kurt Russell, then I called him Kurt Douglas. Call me Snake. Just for the record, everyone, I know who Kirk Douglas is. So when it comes to the objective of this movie, I feel like the, the Blue Max really seemed to be talking about what war can do to a man and. Normally in war movies, you know, we see this from this perspective of heroes and, you know, Papard's characters kind of that, but not really, you know, like we know that he's an inherently selfish man and is not really all that invested in, you know, the goals of the war or anything like that. It's much more about, you know, achieving a certain level of rank, getting the Blue Max medal and all of that. And I think the film illustrates what happens when you kind of give up some of your humanity to avarice and greed. Whether or not it succeeds at that goal, I'm about half and half, honestly. You know, in aiming with this character, it's trying to describe the average airman, not necessarily an aristocrat or a poor man, someone who's just trying to exist and kind of has really lost his moral center, if he ever had one. I mean, obviously, we don't see him before this, so he could have been a good person before the war. Who knows? But it is really unnecessarily long, and Papard is way too smug for me in this. 
you know, he's just so unrelatable and remote and it doesn't it, it just makes him boring. And like, I don't care what happens to this guy. And for the story to work, you really kind of have to care for some reason, whether it's because you don't like him or you do like him. There are some really great parts to this movie. And, you know, that kind of goes into whether or not I liked it. I mean, I liked some of it. I really like the relationship between Hederman and Von Klugerman. And I love the amazing aerial photography and the stunt work and all of that is just so fantastic. So it totally was worth watching. But when it came to the story, that's the part that really feels like it's lacking. So I think I'm in the middle. Yeah, I don't know that I'd watch it again. I'd probably watch some of the flying bits again. But as to sit down and watch it from beginning to end, I, I just don't know that this is something that would keep my interest going to make it through the whole thing another time. So am I the only one who watched the trailer? Because the trailer for this fucking movie is weird in like a 60s kind of way. The big tagline for the trailer that seems to be the focus point of the advertising campaign is, we'll see if you think you're as good as you are, in or out of bed. (laughs) Oh my God. In context, it worked better than it worked in the trailer. It worked enough. So like, if you take that line out of context and you make that the centerpiece of your commercial for this movie. That sounds like an executive. Well, that's the thing is that the filmmakers versus the people who are trying to sell the film to the public are not always communicating. Wes Anderson probably gets to cut his own trailers. Paul Thomas Anderson has a certain amount of autonomy over his own shit that is absolutely insane. So they're not always in sync with each other. And this is probably a case of that, but this was also the sixties. Like I said, we're like the bad boy, anti-hero kind of smug, stick it to the man guy, not just like rebel without a cause or like Marlon Brando and a t-shirt and leather jacket, like not that kind of rebel. It was like a, a, a weird kind of self-assured disinterestedness. Very, very typical of the time, but it was George Papard. It was the towel that was, please God, I had to have been taped to Ursula Andress's breasts because I've never seen a towel sit so still on a woman who's rolling around a bed when it's just draped over her shoulders. In the 60s, you're not going to get the full boobs, but you're going to get as much side boob, kind of cast a shadow on it as like as much as you can, like just the outside edge of that, like a a, a suggestion, uh, like a whisper. Quick question. So seven days of May, 1964, Hayes Code, this movie, 1966, not Hayes Code, right? When did the Hayes Code end? Because the because the like kissing and semi nudity and all of that was like way better. Probably like sixty five. I mean, that's what I would guess because these these two movies seem vastly different in terms of how they approach sex. But so I think that the Hayes Code didn't necessarily like stop on a dime. I think it was a a certain amount of like fading away. Okay, was always the impression that I got. 
This is like starting into the new Hollywood era of the 70s. Yes, I agree. I agree. Ursula Andress was in Playboy, fully nude, full frontal nudity, 1965. So she was a current Playboy bunny when this was filmed. So you don't cast her and not make use of her sex appeal. Right. I'm certain that somebody making this movie, Dan, you're right, really just wanted to recreate some really great aerial pornography. It has some great fighter plane porn, but but I don't think that that's necessarily the focus of the movie, or at least that's not what the audience was going to see. I think they were going to see George Papard be cool, smarmy, have sex with Ursula Andress, and fly a plane. And by those standards, this movie hit the target. Would this movie have been better with a different person in it? Maybe not Steve McQueen. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but like this is a role that could have gone really well to like a, a young Clint Eastwood or maybe like a James Coburn type. Maybe a little bit harder featured than George Papard and a better presence in the film, but just not fucking George Papard. Like don't stop letting him do things. Why do we let George Papard do things? Cause everybody else in this movie is really working. And I think he's just kind of there. And, and so here's my, this isn't just a magic bullet for Liam makes it better, but I think I like when I was watching this and I tried to go to bed immediately afterwards. Cause again, it was late and I was tired, but I had trouble falling asleep because I couldn't stop thinking about how much I would love to do a stage adaptation of the Blue Max that was just the stuff that wasn't the planes. Like all that stuff happens off stage. And the reason why I want to do that is because I think that if the stuff that isn't the planes was all you had to work with, you would have had to tighten it up and make it a lot better. The dialogue would have to push the action forward. The characters would have to listen to each other and actually like play off of each other more. There would have to be like stakes in the conversations. And I think that last scene, one of my favorite things is silence on stage. When you have a play and it's silent because the audience can't handle it. Actors can't handle it. Nobody can handle it. And imagine, if you will, engage me in a flight of fancy, and imagine that last scene just from the little communications office where he's calling in and saying, oh yeah, Stachel, go ahead and fly the plane. Give him a good show. And then like hangs up. And then you just have to wait. And he's sitting there waiting to hear the plane take off. And he's sitting there waiting to hear the plane fly around. And she's losing her goddamn mind, but she has nothing to say on the subject. And then the guy comes in. He's like, how did you let that? And he just holds his hand up. And then it's like three people just standing there on the stage, just waiting and waiting for as long as I could possibly make it happen. I could drag that shit out for 10 minutes and it would be riveting. 
it would be great. And then you hear the crash and then darling will be late for lunch. And then he leaves. And then the, the commander is just left there to deal with like what the fuck just happened. Barely a word said for that length of time. And that's something that sadly you can't really do on film the same way that you can do it on a stage. Cause on a stage it's right there and you're just watching these actors act, but you're like, did somebody forget a line? Is this on purpose? Has something gone wrong? And then the longer it goes, the more you realize that it actually is intentional. I'm fascinated by that idea. And I would love to see something like that on stage. But I think that just taking that workshopping that script and then putting it back into this movie and also replace George Papard, (laughs) that would make this movie fucking spectacular. And it wasn't. Did I like it? I can't say that I did mostly because of George Papard, but also the, the stuff that wasn't the planes flying around and doing their things wasn't quite working for me either. So it was okay. Got to get rid of the Papard. What are we doing next? So next we are going to be doing the 1993 film Gettysburg starring a mustachioed Jeff Daniels. Finally, a mustachioed Sam Elliott. And Martin Sheen playing cuddly grandpa, Robert E. Lee. Whoa. And also the always fabulous Stephen Lang. He's always great. He's a real prick, not in real life, but like he always plays a real prick and he does it great. Tom Berenger with a beard larger than I am. It'll be a good time. I forgot to mention Tom Berenger. Tom Berenger looks a lot like an older, more disgruntled, more scarred, more crazy George Papard. Let's get a young Tom Berenger in this role and I'll be down. Yeah. That's who could have played the George Papard role. I, I, I kept yeah. thinking about Tom Berenger. Tom Berenger would have fucked in this role. Yeah. Thank you, Dennis, for all the historical research. As per usual, we are going to throw up all the stuff we didn't have the time to get into, into our surplus ordinance. And uh, a few days after the episode airs, you can find that on our website under the blog section. You can go to dangerclosepod.com. And then click on the blog and you will see all the surplus ordinance. I'll also post it in our Facebook group, as well as I'm hoping that Jeff and Peter can expound a little bit more on the aircraft types and all that. We didn't want to bury you guys in a deluge of numbers as usual. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.